Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of, Jab- of Jabum, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Hagoyim, um, because, he, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. The people, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, from the, uh, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the country hill of Ephraim. The Israelites went up to her and to have the disputes decided. She sent for Barak, Barak son of Abimoin, uh, from Kadesh in Nethpali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands to you, Come, take with you 10,000 men to Nephpali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tab- Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the, king, uh, the commander of Jebim's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I, w- I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Nethali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched a tent in the great tree by the great tree of Zananim under Kedesh, near Kedesh. When, when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Ebamoin, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasith, Aboim to the Kishon River, all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera. This is the, Lord, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor and 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Zael, the wife of Herbert the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between King Jabim, king of Hazor, and the family of Herbal the Kenite, Zael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he said. He told her, 
If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say, no. But Zael, Herbert's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drew the peg, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Then when Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, Zael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in the tent, so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, under the, uh, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Thanks, Daniel. On the back of your newsletters, you'll find an outline of the talk. You might find that useful. We will be looking at chapters 4 and 5, but uh, 5 we'll be doing a bit more quickly uh, as we go through the song that's there. Let me just get this set up. Let me turn the lights on. Yes, it does. There we go. Okay, I don't know what you remember of the news in the last week or so. Let's just cast your memory back last Tuesday to this Tuesday. I assume some things have come up on Facebook. You might have watched a bit of TV. But what you remember has been in the news. Trump. Trump. Trump trumps. Yeah. Okay, so he's made the news even across the Atlantic. Oh. Pacific Ocean, right over the other side. Some of us are feeling quite scared. Budget. Yes, there's been a budget. Money seems to... Well, nothing changes much, does it? It's not a, not a very significant budget, except your money is being used for you and other people. Anybody remember sport? Some people do. Ruben, sport. Ah, uh, oh, right. The fight is on. Who's he going to fight? Are you going to fight him? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, actually some of the biggest news, I think, on the world stage in the last week have been things like bombs going off in Afghanistan. In fact, one went off in the middle of a, a shopping centre this week. More than 70 people murdered in cold blood just by somebody setting a bomb and killing them. Now, we've got fatigue though, haven't we? Those sort of things are just happening. Afghanistan, that happens every week, doesn't it? Uh, or maybe closer to home, a little bit more on our TV screen, Syrian refugees, millions of them being used as political footballs between Greece and the rest of Europe, uh, across in, uh, 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 some of those uh, in Turkey, um, people uh, finding life very, very difficult, kicked out of their own country and yet no solution where they are. Coral reef bleaching, the Trump endorsement. As somebody has said... All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So I forget about the men bit, just good people to do nothing. I presume that's a quote you've heard in the movies, if nowhere else. In fact, in the movies, it just takes one good man, doesn't it? Tom Cruise can do it all on his own. One good man standing against evil and evil will not triumph. But notice the quote is actually quite pessimistic. Evil will triumph if people do nothing. 
The, the tendency, the natural course, the, 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 the flow is all towards evil triumphing. It's got the momentum. And you need to stop it. You need to do something if you're a good person. Well, our story from Judges today is about the triumph of evil and that triumph being reversed. We've read the, the main story in chapter 4. But the story is told twice. Once as a sort of narrative, as a prose, and then secondly as a poem, as a song. In chapter 4, we see uh, evil flourishing. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. Ehud was one of the, uh, the judges of Israel. He'd won a great victory. Remember Ehud, the left-handed assassin. In, right into the fact. Remember that last week? Once you've, once you've heard it, you can't forget it, can you? Well, he rules for a while and then he dies. And then it all goes bad again. And we see the cycle that we've started to see that comes throughout this book of Judges. Israel turns away from the Lord and the Lord hands Israel over to the enemies. This time it's Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigns in Hazor. Israel is in distress. In fact, in verse 3 we're told they're cruelly oppressed for 20 years. Can you imagine that? For most of you that's your whole lifetime, isn't it? Imagine you've grown up in a family cruelly oppressed. Your parents, everything taken from them. They've been in effective slavery. There's no medical help. There's no nothing. They're just under the thumb. And you've grown up with that. That's all the life you've known. Well, that was true for Israel. And they finally cry to the Lord for help. And the Lord raises a judge to save them. And Israel has peace and they turn away. Well, we're in that cycle in verses 1 to 3. They cry for help. And Deborah, verse 4, a prophet... The wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at the time. She held court. She's judging. That's the word that's used. And it's quite unusual because she's a woman judging. And she's come to judge in a different way to normal. Othniel, if you remember his story, he becomes a judge because first he's a saviour. He leads the army into victory with God's help. And then he becomes the judge. But Deborah's never been on the, the battlefield. She's just judging during this cruel oppression. And the text emphasises her womanliness. Literally it says, Now Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. Three times. Woman, woman. You think, oh, something's going on here. What is it about a woman? She's a prophet. She speaks God's words to the people. And she has a command from God for a guy called Barak. And she sends to Barak, verse 6, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up Mount Tabor, and I'll lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Sisera is Jabin's general. He's got 900 chariots. And in the ancient world, chariots are the equivalent of tanks. Now, you've got tanks, they've only got pistols, you're going to win, aren't you? He's got 900 of these critters. He's going to win. And uh, if you sort of look at the map, the king, Jabin, is in Hazor, way up in the north. But he's got his general in Harasheth Goyo. That is, down south, projecting that military power over Israel. And it's effective for these 20 years. Deborah is down in Bethel, right down in the south there. Uh, but um, Barak is up near the Lake of Galilee, Kadesh Naphtali. So she sends for him and says... Gather some people together from around you. Go up Mount Tabor, which is just opposite Harris Joy, uh, Hagoyim, that, that place. So you've got a bit of an idea of the geography. Well, let, let's see what happens. So she sends to Barak and says, come on, 
God says, lead the people, gather troops, go up Mount Tabor, and I'll give uh, Sisera into your hand. What does he do? Does he say, great, at last God has come to our help, let's go. After all, the Lord has commanded, hasn't he? And the Lord has assured him that he'll be with him. That should be all that's needed. But no, he reacts very differently. He says to Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. And if you don't go with me, I won't go. What is that? Well, maybe there's a bit of fear there. to manipulation to get Deborah to come. Certainly what we see is an unwillingness to trust and obey the Lord God. He's, he's reluctant. He, he's a whip, isn't he? Unless you come with me, I won't go. He, he's a mummy's boy. That's what he is. And Deborah, her response is, well, I'll go with you, verse 9. But because of the course you're taking, the honour will not be yours. The Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Your wimpish response will have consequences. A woman is going to be the hero of this victory. And you think, oh, that surely is Deborah. Don't you think it? Now, it, it's impossible to miss that there's a gender thing happening here, I think. What do we do with it? What, what do we make of it? Deborah is clearly exercising some sort of leadership in Israel. But it seems like in both her mind and in God's mind, the role of a military leader probably belongs to a man to somebody like Barak. But the man proves a wimp. Uh, he doesn't... Uh, and Deborah, at that point, doesn't take over. She says, well, if you're going to be a wimp, I, I, I'll just take over and do it. No. She goes with him, so he can still do it. But God is going to bring some consequences. If men won't stand up, well, maybe God will use a woman. 2016 is the year the Australian Defence Forces have earmarked as the year in which they'll remove all gender distinctions in the armed forces. The last distinction to be removed is combat roles. That's happening this year all across the Australian Defence Forces. Now, I'm not quite sure how you feel about that. I actually feel a little bit uneasy, personally. Maybe I'm just a chauvinist, I'm not quite sure. But it seems to me that violent killing is horrible at the most necessary of times. And to ask women to do it, it just goes against all the wonderful traits that women have. And in this situation, Barak is asked to step up. Men are asked to step up to stop being wimps. More widely, you might say, men need to man up and stop shirking their responsibilities. Now, when Cicero hears about Barak collecting 10,000 people, Deborah with him, assembles his army, he moves in to crush with his 900 chariots. Uh, and you say, well, 900 chariots against 10,000 men. Sisera's going to win. This is just going to be a rout. And verse 15, it is a rout. But it's the opposite. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. No explanation as to how it happened. Just the Lord did it. Barak and his troops then... Uh, pursue the retreating army west towards Harris Hagoyim, across that way, cutting down every soldier as they go. But the final victory is not by Barak. Sisera, the general, he abandons his troops and heads in the opposite direction. He heads east to save his own skin. He's looking for sanctuary with Heber, the Kenite. Now, Heber's actually been introduced to us back in verse 11, but we sort of skipped over it because it's, it's a useless bit of information at that point. But we're told in 11, Heber is a Kenite. The Kenites 
uh, are related to Moses. That is, they've got a real connection with Israel. They're not part of Israel, but they've got this family connection, this blood connection. You'd expect them then to be allies of Israel. But Heba, he leaves the rest of them and goes up north on his own and allies himself with Jabin, the king in Hazel. He's distanced himself from Israel and from his own tribe. And so Sisera comes to the tent of Heba's wife, Jael, and as expected, she offers him sanctuary. But the story of her deception and death-inflicting disease is, is told with delightful glee. You just listen to it. Verse 18, Jael went to, out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm harmless. I won't do anything to you. So he entered the tent and she covered him with a blanket, nice and cosy in the court. And he said, I'm thirsty. Please get me some water. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him some milk to drink, almost like a baby might have. And then he tells her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks, is anyone in there? Say no. At this point, it's dripping with irony because our translations sort of move the genders around a bit. What he actually says is, if a man comes and asks, is there a man in there? Say no. Well, there is a man coming. His name's Jabin. But by the time he comes, there is no man in the tent because he's dead. Because Jael's done the deed. And then in verse 21, with all the suspense of the best told drama, or best told movie, or all the, the drama of a story really well told, Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him where he fell, where he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple. You feel it, don't you? In fact, you can't but imagine it in your mind as it happens. <coughs> Threw his temple into the ground and he died. And Jael becomes the hero, the most unlikely hero you can imagine. She's a woman to start with. And yet she turns out to be this military hero. And not only a woman, she's a Gentile. You know, she's a Kenite. She's not even one of the Israelites. She's somebody from outside. She's a foreigner. But she ends up being the hero of this story. Now, there's all sorts of things that, that's remarkable about that, and we'll chase some of them in a minute. But notice that this is Israel telling her own story to, to themselves, and an outsider is the hero of the story. Now, outside the Bible, we don't have much information about these, these characters. It's, it's lost in, in uh, archaeological dust, really. It's very hard. It would be almost impossible to imagine we'd you know, find a, a, a bit of pottery with the inscription, the Hebrew, the Kenite on it, and we say, oh, is his wife here somewhere? But it speaks volumes for the authenticity of this story, that Israel is willing to tell stories about a past where an outsider is the hero. We don't do that. We tell stories of our footy team or stories of Anzac Day. It's, it's always the Aussies who are the heroes, isn't it? That's how we always tell the stories. But here in the Bible, we find stories that are true. They tell it like it was, with all its drama and pathos. Well, there's the story. But chapter 5 retells the story. It tells it in the form of a song. A song is, well, singing is a wonderful experience, isn't it? It's a, it's a great aspect of human life. Because in singing, you don't just imagine things, you, you feel them. 
You've got that emotional connection with what you're saying. And every now and then in the Bible, the Bible writers break out in song to express their joy, their exuberance, their just, just sheer rejoicing most of the time. You might remember Exodus 15. Exodus 14, we get the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea and the Egyptian army being drowned in the sea. And then chapter 15, we get a song about it. And the song is just over the top. It's just... And it's the sort of thing you'd sing when your team has just won the grand final with all the verb and exuberance you could muster. Well, that's what this song is like as well. Or it's like the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, which breaks out in the Alleluia chorus. Alleluia. Sorry, I won't sing. You know, you know that. That's in Revelation 19. It just breaks out in song. It's interesting. I think in the religions of the world, it's only Christianity that sings. Buddhism doesn't. Hinduism doesn't. Islam doesn't. Christianity sings because we have something to sing about, something incredible to sing about, God's victory, God's salvation. So we'll just pick up some bits out of chapter 5, we won't go through all of it, and just see the flow of this song. I'd love if we had the music here and we'd get a couple of people out here and sing it for us because I think it would lift your hearts because that's what music does. I won't sing because that won't lift your hearts, but let's at least look at some of the content. Um, so you see, it, it starts off in verse 1. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Binuam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. You kings out in the world. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel. See, at the end of this victory, Sisera dead in Jael's tent. They sing of the Lord and what he has done because the victory is really his. Verse 4, when you, Lord, went out from Seir, that is, Mount Sinai, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. What happened today was like what happened back at Mount Sinai. When you appeared to us, Lord, it was, it was overwhelming. The earth shook. There, there were thunder clouds and, and storms. Well, that's what it was like on this day. Or pick it up in verse 11. The voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villages in Israel. The word there, victories, is not just about military victory. It's literally the righteousnesses of the Lord. His righteous deeds. Because this is not just God exercising a bit more muscle than others have got. Proving that he's got more power than other people by smashing some. It's righteousness. This is just war. This is bringing justice to people, putting things right. But when God did it, Israel herself was quite divided. Verse 12, wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake the, break out in song. Arise, Barak, take uh, captive your captives from Abinuah, son of Abinuah. The remnant of the nobles came down, the people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. That's Barak speaking, I think. Some came down from Ephraim, whose roots were in uh, Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. Uh, from Mekir, that is in Zebulun, captains came down who bear the commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the but, this is the change, in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. See, many of the people of Israel, quite a few of the tribes, they sent their, their troops, their men, off to battle to Barak, but some didn't. Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why do you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of hearts. See what they're saying? 
In Reuben, they sort of stood around saying, should we go? What's going to happen to our sheep if we go? But they might miss us, our poor sheep. We'd better stay around. We wouldn't want to risk our lives by going. And so they had this earnest discussion around the water cooler, but no action. They just stayed at home. By deciding not to go, they decided to stay by default. Others joined them in not going. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Dan, why do you linger among the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed his coast. But the people of Zebulun risked their lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. See, some went. They risked their lives. But many, well, they were infected with the same jelly shake that Barak had. Unwilling to choose. Unwilling to commit to put their lives on the line. And then in verses 19 following, we have a recounting of the battle itself. 19, kings came, they fought. That is, the kings of Canaan, they fought. At Tanak, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder or silver. That is, they didn't win. Because from the heavens, the stars fought against them. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the hooves, uh, the horses' hooves, galloping, galloping, uh, go his mighty steeds. That is, out of there, retreating as fast as they can. See, now we're told poetically how God routed Sisera's chariots. It's told poetically the stars fought against Sisera. That is, the very heavens themselves that God controlled were on his side, working towards him. The river Kishon was flooded. That is, there was a gigantic storm and it just washed away the chariots. It wasn't the prowess of Barak and his troops that won the day. It wasn't their skill with the sword and spear. It wasn't the courage to fight like crazed men. No, God did it. They just cleared up the mess afterwards. That's all they did. But in the midst of the song extolling the Lord and his victory, Jael is extolled as well. Verse 24, Most blessed be the woman, uh, of women be Jael, the wife of Hebar the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for noble, uh, fit for noble she brought him curdled milk. There, there, dear boy. He's a mummy's boy. That's what he is. And she treats him like that. And then her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. It's sort of like slow motion, isn't it? You know, in the movies, they slow the dramatic scenes down. Well, this is slowed down. And we see every nuance of Jael's action. She took the peg. She took the hammer. She swung the hammer. It went through his temple. And verse 27, at her feet he sank. He fell. He lay there. At her feet he sank. He fell. And where he sank, he fell dead. This is the slow-mo repeat. You see it from every angle. He falls. He's dead. He falls. He's dead. He falls. He's dead. At the hands of a woman... You can't get anything more humiliating than that. Now, some of you might be feeling a bit squirmish at this violence, uncomfortable at the obvious delight in the deceit and execution of Sisera. And if you are uncomfortable, verse 31 will increase that discomfort, I think. Here's the prayer at the end. Here's the end of the song, the climax of the song. Verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, Lord. May all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. All your enemies perish, but those who love you rise in strength. 
But you might say, hold on, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Yeah, that's what Jesus said. In the sense of wanting good for those who oppose you. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to endorse the evil that they do. Especially it doesn't mean that I'm supposed to ignore the enmity people have towards God. It is a wonderful truth that God loved his enemies. He loved his enemies so much he sent his son to die for them. Well, not for them. For us. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. It was while we were enemies that Christ died for us. Why? Not so we'd stay enemies, but so we'd be reconciled. Not so God's enemies could coexist with God forever, evil and good going on side by side in an endless state of hostility. No, that's not what God desires. He desires enemies to turn. He's provided the way for that to happen. The only way evil won't triumph is if good triumphs, if evil is eradicated, if the enemies of God perish. If we say all it takes for evil not to not triumph is good men to do something, this passage says something different to that. All it takes for evil not to triumph is for God to do something. And he has. And he will. So I want to take you to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. If you've got a Bible there, you might want to turn with me to see how history will finish, how our world will end up. This world that we love, that we share, that we enjoy and we grieve in. It's the Alleluia Chorus. The word Alleluia only occurs four times in the whole New Testament. And they're all in this chapter, in Revelation chapter 19. And it starts with this. Uh, John hears what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Alleluia! And you've got the feel of that. You, you shout hallelujah when you're exuberant, when you're happy, when, when everything is fine, everything is the way it should be. And that's what it looks like. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Well, verse 2. For true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. Do you hear Judges 4 and 5 in that? But here it's final. Alleluia, why? Because God has condemned the prostitute. The prostitute in Revelation is Babylon. It's a, it's a city, but it represents the corrupt enemies of God. Those who have political power, those who have religious power, and those who join up with them, who just sign on up and go along with them. The prostitute is condemned. And God avenges the blood of his servants. The blood of Christ's martyrs. Those who back in chapter 6 of Revelation already dead have been crying out to, to the Lamb saying, how long, how long before you avenge our blood? Because they've been executed. They've been killed. They've been raped. They've been... And that's happening in our world. Only a year ago, armed men stoomed Garrison University in southern Kenya. They took 700 hostages. And they separated all the Christians and executed them. 148 were killed. In India, just two months ago, a husband and wife were murdered after the elders in their village in Andhra Pradesh falsely accused them of murdering a young boy in the village by black magic. The boy had died following a leg wound that didn't heal. So the village elders hired men to come to the village. They beat up the couple with sticks and burned them to death. That's out of Barnabas magazine. 
That's happening to Christians all across our world. And God's promise is that his enemies will perish. Is that just wishful thinking? No. Sisera perished at the hand of Jael, at the hand of God. Jesus, as we saw last week, has already done the the most significant deed. He's already put the sword into Satan. He's already confronted death and won. The most unlikely hero. If Jael is an unlikely hero, so is Jesus. He's an outsider to the religious establishment. He's left on a cross hanging dead. But in his death, he defeats the enemies of God. But that's the first phase. There's still a phase to come. There's a future. God defeating, God uh, causing the perishing of all his enemies. His martyrs cry out, how long? How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And they're told, wait. Those who were shot at Gerissa are there crying out, how long? This Indian couple are there crying, how long? Their daughters are crying, how long? The three daughters who are left. And Jesus says, one day, one day, all the enemies of God will perish. That is what is coming. So the question, the personal question it raises, I think, is whose side are you on? Are you on the side of Jesus or evil? On the side of God and good or not? Now, I know that seeing the world in that sort of black and white way, that good versus evil way, it doesn't, it's not very trendy at the moment. We need to be a bit more nuanced than that. There's, everything is a shade of grey. It's more complex. There aren't goodies and baddies except in the movies. Everyone is a little bit of a mix of both because we know that that's sort of what we're like. And the Bible recognises those nuances, the diminished responsibilities, those who lead and those who follow. But ultimately, we all choose one or the other, good or evil, on God's side or not. And there may be much searching of heart around the water coolers, but the equivocation is usually decide not to join God. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. They're strong words, aren't they? They're divisive words. Are you with Jesus? Have you chosen? And my guess is that some of us have never thought we need to choose. We've just been living life and what choice is there? I just live life as it comes. I, I don't see there's a choice, but Jesus puts the choice very plainly and the, the vision of Revelation 19 says there is a choice to make and that choice will have ultimate eternal consequences. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not quite sure whether I've chosen at all because, well, I mean, other people have chosen for me, haven't they? I've grown up in a family where people have chosen to be on the side of God. Then I've been a, a bunch, a, 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 among a bunch of friends at school and even starting uni and, well, they're all choosing God, so I, I guess I've chosen, haven't I? Well, have you really? Or are you like the people who are equivocating, the searching of hearts and discussing and, and in the end, by not choosing, you, you choose the other? If you're not sure, choose. Work out which you will be. And if you have chosen Jesus, if you have chosen good over evil, then the clear thing to do is to live it out. Don't equivocate when things go on the line. Don't wimp out like uh, um, uh, people in this story. No, stay with Jesus, even when it takes courage to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that there is an end to history. We thank you that your enemies will perish one day. 
Thank you that us, your former enemies, you've welcomed onto your side. And Father, we pray that you would help us to keep choosing to be on your side, whatever comes.